As you find your seats, if you will turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis 18, as we continue together our journey uh, through this portion of Genesis, looking at this life of Abraham, this amazing man of faith that God declares righteous. Uh, He's important to us because spiritually we do call him our father Abraham, and we see that God's blessings to him were for all nations, and it's amazing how we see that we too are blessed because of his faith. We too are blessed because of the promise that was made to him. My favorite part of church, other than worship, man, there's nothing that beats this, is there? Uh, is my community group. I just love my community group. I'm so grateful to be in community, to gather every Thursday night at our house around God's word, for us to wrestle together through life and uh, really the issues that we all face and to see how the gospel applies to us, to try to live transparently before one another. But to join our group, and we have brought others in uh, who have made the screening process. But to join our group, the bigger question we have is there's going to be one initiation question that I'm going to share with you. There might be more, but there's one that I'll share with you. Uh, And it's this. We ask everybody who joins the group, who is the most famous person that you have ever met? And it's always really cool because it'll reveal how did you meet them and where are they? And I got to confess, it's really one upsmanship. Because we all want to have the most famous person that we ever met. And I you know, it's not me. We had somebody who met Bono. I mean, not just met Bono from YouTube, but like talked to him for a long time. I'm like, oh man, Bono, that's awesome. One person got on a plane and flew across the country with Hall of Famer Joe Montana. That's pretty cool, is it not? Uh, one person was uh, good friends with Ken Griffey Jr.'s wife. And knew most of the Seattle Mariners. I mean, it was my turn. I said, Stan Petkavich. You know? And uh, it wasn't Stan. But anyway. Uh, you know, we all desire. You ever notice when you ever ask, when a conversation goes that way, like, who's the most famous person you know? Is it not always one-upmanship? It's like we hardly listen to the other person. We just want to better them. Oh, yeah? You, you think that's good? You, you know that person? I know this one. Um, but forget just really an acquaintance. What about friends? What about having a friend in high places? I mean, it's always said, it's always good. Uh, It's not what you know, it's who you know. Uh, And have a friend in a high place uh, certainly um, is a benefit uh, right here in our own congregation. See here, is Matt Weathersby here? I have my brother-in-law. He's like like a chief of police of Orange County. And so I tell you, anytime I get pulled over, and you don't need to know how often that is, I use his name like crazy. Matt Weathersby, I mean, I bring it up in conversation as much as I can. Why? Because it's great to have friends or brother-in-laws in high places. Well, we've been looking at the book of Abraham, or book of Genesis. We're looking at Gen- uh, Abraham in that book. And we'll see that he's had some pretty amazing titles, some pretty amazing responsibilities. As we've seen him, we've seen that he has been called the prophet of God. He's somebody who speaks for God. Woo, big title, huh? Uh, he's been not only that, he, we've seen him in a kingly role. We looked at a passage of scripture where the kings of that area got together and were at war and Abraham acted as God's king and what a, what a, what a king he was for God's people. So not only was he a prophet, he's a king. He's also been a priest. We'll see that this chapter as well. We'll see that he's one who intercedes for the people to God. He really is a, a what you can see those major roles, prophet, priest, and king. 
But do you know what Abraham's title that he has that almost no one else in all of Scripture has directly? Do you know what God's word calls Abraham? A friend of God. God's word calls him friend. Now, if you've been here, you've loved Jesus enough to have been journeying with us. One thing we know about Abraham is he is like us. He's a knucklehead. Abraham, has, has, although he's been declared righteous by believing in God's promise, specifically the promise of a son to come that will make all things right, we've also seen in Abraham, he, he goes off and tries to do things his own way. I mean, we've seen him go into Egypt and make a mess of things. We've seen him uh, with a relationship with Hagar, an Egyptian, and make a mess of things. And here's some really good news for every single one of you sitting here. God calls sinners friends. Isn't that good news? So I guess we're not disqualified from that. As a matter of fact, James 2.23 says this about Abraham. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Did you hear that? It wasn't the stuff that Abraham did. It wasn't his religion or being a prophet, a priest, or a king that made him right with God. What makes him right with God, amazingly, is God's grace and faith. He believed in the promises of God, specifically the promise of a son to come. And because of that belief, God saw him and called him righteousness. Cool stuff. But it says in that passage, is even more. And he was called a friend of God. In First Chronicles, he's called a friend of God. Isaiah 41, he's called a friend of God. What good news that a sinner like Abraham could be his friend. In chapter 18, we see how God deals with his friend Abraham. We see the grace of God. We see how, how he deals with him and his wife as friends, tenderly intimately, with, with full disclosure. But in chapter 18, we're going to th- see three things. The first thing is this. How does God treat his friends? The second thing we're going to see is how does God treat his foes? Hmm. Some interesting things here. And then lastly, that really tie the first two together, how does God treat his only begotten son? And how does that affect us today? So let's go to our Bibles and pick up the story where we left it off last week. In Genesis 18, mindful that this is God's very word. It was written a long time ago uh, for a specific time and a specific reason. As God's people were heading toward the promised land, leaving Egypt. But because the Holy Spirit breathed upon Moses, these are God's very words. Scripture says that the things that happened in the past, it says in Romans 15, happened for us. So this is a story not to entertain us. This is a story to intersect us. This is a story of God's love for us. And so this is for us, each and every one of us that's here. I'm going to this morning do something a little different. I occasionally do this. I'm going to pray first and then read scripture. Scripture is God's word. It should stand alone. But this morning, there's so much in this text. And there's some things I want to add, a little commentary too. And so with that, I'm going to ask God to make clear what he wants to make clear. And the stuff that's just mine, that that would be forgotten. So can we pray together, please? Father, we thank you so much for who you are. And when we think about who you are, and we think about that you're holy and you're the creator and that you're you're mighty God, it's amazing for us to think that we have the audacity and the privilege to call you friend. 
Father, I thank you that you befriend sinners like Abraham. And I thank you that's all by your grace. Really, the story of the Bible is a story who God just would rather die than not be with his people. A story of God's love that he would rather die than not call us friends and family. So we ask that the Spirit of the living God would come and be with us. And if there's anyone here this morning that isn't your friend yet, that even by your grace, even by design this morning, each one of us could leave here saying, we got a friend in high places, and his name is Jesus. Father, give us ears to hear his voice, minds to understand your word, hearts to embrace your truth, and feet to walk in a manner worthy of your name. The things that I say that are my opinion are wrong, may those things just fall away and be forgotten. But the things that are said that are true, that point us to the good news of the gospel that makes us your friends, would you use those things to remind us of who Jesus is and what he has done for us? It's in his name we pray, amen. God's word, Genesis 18. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, and he sat at the door of his tent, Abraham, in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree while I bring you a morsel of bread, which by the way is a lot more than a morsel. This is a feast that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on. Since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three sheaves, which I've done the math, is 21 quarts of fine flour. Knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, let's stop. You see the capital letters of the word Lord there? I mean, one of these three visitors, this is a theophany. This is the appearance of God Almighty. Uh, God has appeared to Abraham in different visions. God has been in chapter 15, he appeared in, in the darkness, in the dread. It was like a, a smoldering pot. He's appeared to God in visions. Now he's appearing to him in human form. This is what we would believe to be the appearing of the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity. He deals with him differently as not just an angel, but as specifically he's speaking to God, the mercy of God to show up. And tenderly talked to him. Again in verse 10. I will surely return to you, the Lord said, about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Only God Almighty can say things like that. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah, well, they were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Really the Hebrew here, the cycle of women had ceased to be with Sarah. She, she has basically died 
to any hope of, of reproduction and having a child. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, that's Abraham, shall I have pleasure? Uh, really saying, shall I have relationship with my husband? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a son now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? It's interesting. Abraham's response, the same thing. He's bowed before the Lord. He laughed too. Now Sarah laughs. And what's, what's this boy's name going to be? Isaac. What does it mean? Laughter. Interesting. Is anything too hard for the Lord, the Lord said. At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. And Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Look at how tender he is with her. You know, we we have the privilege of being honest before God. He loves us. He knows the truth. We don't have to hide the truth. He's going to bring the truth to the surface. And he did with her. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, and I think this is kindness of the Lord to reveal this to us. He rhetorically says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him. And this word here, chosen him, this, this is this, I know him intimately. This is the same Hebrew word used for a, a man and wife who know each other. I have chosen him. I know him intimately. Abraham is my friend. That he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they have done what they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham asked and said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 were lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry And I will speak. Suppose there are 30 found there, he answered. I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. Interestingly, 
the number 10 uh, is the the number needed for a synagogue in that community, uh, a community of believers. Suppose I found 10 there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Let's pray again. Father God, make clear this ancient story for your glory and for your friends. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. There's a bulletin, and the bulletin, there's an outline for you if you want to follow along with me. The first thing is this, the way God treats his friends. The way we treat friends is this way. We treat them with intimacy. If you have a friend, what are you going to do with a friend? Well, you're going to go and you're going to have fellowship with them. You're going to go and have a meal with them. You're going to go and you're going to share your life and your life story and your loves and your dreams and, and what your plans are. That's what friends do. If you go out with somebody and you don't know anything about them and they don't share some intimate details about their life, they truly aren't your friend. And here we have God, and God is so gracious, who made us in his image. And the whole story of the Bible is a story of a God who wants to befriend us, know us, love us, and walk with us. And the way God does that is his fellowship with us, to call us into a relationship with himself. Look at the intimacy with this. We see it in Abraham, who so wants to be a host to the Lord, and the Lord willing to sit down with Abraham and break bread with him and have a meal with him. But he does more than that. He also shares with him the intimacy of his his plans. Let me tell you, Abraham, because you're my friend, because you're the chosen one, I'm going to tell you what what I'm about to do. I'm going to share with you my plans. Interesting what this wonderful God shares with him. He shares both good news and bad news. He says, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do with Sarah. I mean, you've been waiting. The promise has been there for a really, really, really long time. And I know that Sarah, I mean, she seems to be too old. The days have passed her by. But you're going to have a son, and I'm going to set the clock. You're going to have a son within a year. I'm going to come back about this time, and you're going to have a little boy hanging out here. I got this good news to share with you. But he also shares bad news. I want to tell you what's going to happen to where Lot's living. I want to tell you what's happening with Sodom and Gomorrah. They're in trouble. See how gracious it is for God to to reveal to us uh, who he is, to have fellowship with us and what he is going to do. And how are we to respond, those of us who are his? How are we to respond, those of us who he calls into relationship with him, because we are his friends? He says, if we are his friends, we are to live our lives, to walk before him and be blameless and to instruct our children in the way of the Lord. Let's, Let's unpack that for a minute. God, by his grace and mercy, has designed us for a relationship with him. And he's going to take everything out of the way that would cloud that relationship. And he says, I want you to now to live your life and walk before me. He says it this way. I want everything of your life to be affected because of my love for you and the work that I have done for you through the work of my son. I want you to walk your life in a way that you're an imitator of Jesus as a dearly beloved child. I want there to be nothing in your life that's not affected by the way I love you. And the way I'll never let you go. I want you to walk before me blamelessly. And what that means is not that we're sinless. But he says, basically, I want you to be completely marinated in the good news of the gospel. I want you to be Jesus-soaked. I don't want there to be a component of your life that isn't touched with the good news that God is with us and God is for us. 
And so because you're my friend, I want you to walk with me. That's what friends do. And because you're my friend, I want you to have, be consumed uh, with, with our relationship because he's God Almighty, but he says even more. And because you're my friend, I want you to pass on the way to live to your children. I want, he says to us, I want there to be a community that's built between sinners and a holy God. And because we're friends, I'm gonna tell you how to live your life. And as I tell you how to live your life, it's not just for you, it's also for your children. That's why he has chosen him to pass on the way of the Lord. It's awesome. Pass on the way of the Lord. It means basically this, that our whole course of life may be lived in conformity to God's covenant obligations. And one of the things I love about Orangewood is how much we strive to pass on to the next generation the ways of the Lord. One of the things I love about this place is this place fills up with kids. Do you know there's 800 kids on our campus on on a daily basis? Our Maitland Community Preschool uh, is reaching out to our community to say, let us have the privilege of loving your children and telling them about Jesus. Let them have the privilege of telling them the way of the Lord, that our Orangewood Christian School ministry exists. So let us have the privilege of telling the way of the Lord to the next generation. God's privilege that he's come to us and says, I'm going to reveal to you as my friends how you are to live. Let me tell you, it's this way. He tells us in that scripture, keeping the way of the Lord is doing two things. Doing righteousness, it says, and doing justice. Doing righteousness and doing justice. Doing righteousness can be defined this way. Establishing the proper order for community. God has come to us and he says, I love you. And God is going to say, I want to befriend you. And to do that, I'm going to take away all the issues that are between us. We're going to get that in just a moment. But as I love you, and as I've called you, and as I've cleansed you, I want you to live before me with righteousness. I want you to show the world that what it looks like for man and God to walk together, to build a community like Abraham, a sinner, but in love with Jesus. The second thing he says this is do justice. Justice is restoring the brokenness of community. Justice is restoring the brokenness of community. God has called us to himself to walk before him, to be blameless, but to be more than that, to to promote justice and restore the brokenness of community. This is so important. Every one of us has to understand this. This is really important when it comes to friendship with God. We are not a friend of God because we do righteousness and justice. God doesn't befriend us because of what we do. He didn't befriend Abraham because of what he did. He befriended Abraham purely on his grace. He just came to Abraham and said, I'm going to love you. And I want you to walk before me. And Abraham was made right with God by what he believed, not in what he did. Let me say it again. We are not a friend of God because we do righteousness or justice. We do righteousness and justice because we are a friend of God. Does that make sense? It's because of the reality of the grace of God and what Christ has done for us. He has called us to be imitators of God's God's own son as dearly beloved children. We do righteousness and justice because we are his. Being God's friend should change everything. It should change our lives, the way we walk, the way we live, the way we parent, the way we work, our heritage. God treats us as friends. How are you treating him? You know, I read these stories sometimes and think, God shows up at the guy's tent and he has a meal with him. Now that's not my experience. 
Has God knocked on your door and said, can I come in and have a meal with you? Sometimes I feel like I've missed something. I mean, sometimes I feel like they had something so much cooler than I have. But I want to tell you the Bible story is this. God always desires for his children to have fellowship with him. That's the whole story of the Bible. Interesting the word tent. It says that these three men appear, one of them being the Lord, at the tent of Abraham. Do you know what the gospel story says? It says that Jesus put on a tent, put on a tent of a flesh, the flesh of man. Why? To come and rescue with us, uh, rescue us. To come and find us and live a life that we didn't live, die a death that we deserve, so we can have fellowship together. You know, at the end of the Bible is a book called Revelation. You know, in Revelation 3, it says, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. He knocks and he knocks saying, I want to have fellowship with you. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to call you friend. And I want you to know how radically I love you. If you open up by God's grace and you embrace me as your your savior, I will come and have fellowship, have a meal with you. It says that same offers for each one of us. That God says, I want to become your friend by grace in the work of Christ. Well, how about the way God treats his foes? God treats his foes. It's clear here that Sodom and Gomorrah, we know the story. And so much is said about Sodom and Gomorrah. And so much is said about God's anger. And so much is said about, you know, is it really right for a God to do what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah? Read chapter 19. You'll find out what kind of folks were living in Sodom and Gomorrah. But what I want to tell you is this. Scripture portrays God very clearly as a God who is holy. He's a God without sin. He's a God who is purely good and unable to even turn towards evil, unable to even turn towards sin. God right now is is holy God. I mean, he's so holy that the heavenly hosts that are around him have to cover their eyes. He's also a God who's just He's a God who must deal with sin. Because he's holy God and because he's just God, he can't do that which we often think that he can do. And it's this, oh, just kind of forget sin. Just kind of look beyond it. Just kind of ignore it. You see, God's holy and God's just, but I have such good news that every time God describes who he is in the Bible, he uses the language like this. He is slow to anger and abounding in mercy. When he met with Moses in in Exodus 34, 6, to reveal who he was, he says this to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Isn't it good news? How does God treat his foes? With mercy. He's slow to anger. He's patient. He takes no delight in the death of the wicked. He desires that none shall perish. How did God deal with the foes of Sodom and Gomorrah? He personally went to investigate the situation. I love that. There was no knee-jerk, I'm going to smote them. It's not, I'm going to go check this out, because, man, there's some bad stuff going on here. God was willing to spare the entire city for 10 who are righteous. God, God who is slow to anger. But what we got to know about this, God always acts according to his nature. Who he is, as holy God, just God. God always, 100% of the time, never will change. And never can God operate, do one thing outside of his nature. He is holy. He is just. He's also merciful and gracious. And holy and just, we see, uh, we see things like this. Ezekiel 18, 20 says this. The soul who sins shall die. That's scary words, isn't it? The soul who sins shall die. Romans 6.23 says it this way. For the wages of sin is death, 
But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He's holy and just, but he's also merciful and gracious. Let's go back to that passage in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 18, 23 says this of our great God. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Ezekiel 8, 32, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord, so turn and live. Let's talk about that for a minute. If you've been hanging around church and Christians for a while, you've probably heard Romans 6.23 mentioned. And it says again, the wages of sin is death. Do you believe it? I want to tell you because God's holy and just. There's not one sin. There has never been a sin. There is not a sin now. And there never will be a sin that does not lead to death. Every single sin always and holy just eyes always leads to death at will that's what God has told us he can't wink at it he can't look away from it every single sin leads to death but in the grace and mercy of God it's going to be one of two people it's either going to be the death of the sinner who committed it or it's going to be the death of the son who didn't and that's how God can still be amazingly merciful the only way listen The only way for holy God to be both merciful to sinners and just towards sin is the cross of Christ. Now on the cross of Christ, we see justice and mercy kiss. That's the only way that we can have hope. I got a dear friend of mine who I I swim with. He's a lot better at it than me and he works out a lot more than me. And he's the same friend that uh, he told me that if I ran a half marathon, he'd come to church the same amount of miles as a half marathon is 13. He got up about eight and he hasn't been back. And he hasn't been back because he's now training for another Ironman or whatever those things are. But it's interesting because he's a guy who's read the Bible and he's a guy who says, I believe in a guy named Jesus. And I think Jesus' teachings are really good. But why in the world are you talking to me about a virgin birth? It seems crazy and nonsense. And what in the world is there about this cross? And why do I need to believe in the resurrection? All I need to know is do I just follow Jesus? So we're sitting there discussing this at breakfast after we worked out. And, and, and he did what most people do when they hang out with me. He bought breakfast. It's a beautiful thing. And in front of him was the receipt that he bought breakfast. I said, Dan, I want to thank you for, for, for buying my breakfast. And I want to say, thank goodness for that receipt that says we bought it. Because what I don't want to do is I don't want to walk out of here and be accused of being Jameis Winston. Say, wait a minute. You didn't pray for those, pay for those cry blanks, You know, you didn't pay for that breakfast. Yeah, I got you back, Knowles fans. I mean, all the Gator fans in the early service said, thank you, by the way, for finally getting the Knowles. But forget that. Come back to my illustration. It's a good one. I said to him, listen, no one's coming after us because the bill's paid. And we're going to walk out of here and we're going, to, we're, we're, we're going to have freedom to walk out of here knowing that our breakfast has been paid for. You see, if you take away a virgin birth, there's no spotless lamb of God. If you take away a virgin birth, that Jesus is a sinner like us and that sacrifice doesn't work. If you take away a cross of Christ, God didn't crush him for us. If you didn't take away the cross of Christ, a payment has not been made for our sins. If you take away the cross of Christ, I am still sitting in my sin and I owe holy God everything. And if you take away the empty tomb, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then death wins and life doesn't. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then God the Father didn't accept God the Son's sacrifice and we're toast. And I have no freedom, nor do you. 
Jesus didn't come so that we'd be a little bit more moral. Jesus didn't come so we'd be a little bit better. Jesus came so that we could be radically loved, radically his, and radically made right because of what he's done. He came so he can call us friends. Sinners like us, he came to make us a part of his family. And I don't, I don't know how, but somewhere in God's amazing eternal love for us, he demonstrates it by sending his own son to come and rescue us. You see, this only makes sense that God treats his friends this way and his foes this way is the way God treats his son. You see, God treats his son. That was the promised seed to come. The promised seed of Abraham would eventually point to Jesus. And you know the way that holy God treats holy son? The father treats the son like a sinful criminal so he could treat us sinful criminals like his dearly beloved children. Scripture says this, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for God took him for our sake and made him sin. God took Jesus and made him to be your sin and my sin who knew no sin. He was the spotless lamb of God so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you hear that? God, God the Father who just wants us to be long in relationship with him and friends, he took his son. And he treated him like the criminal that we should be treated like. And he poured out his wrath because of our sin on his son. And he took his son's righteousness and he gives it to us so that we could be made alive, so we could be forgiven, so we could be beloved, so we could be his friends. You know, it's interesting. Abraham is, is pleading with God saying, just What if there are some just ones there? Are you going to stop your hand? And you have Jesus, the ultimate priest of God, the ultimate sacrifice, the only one who is truly just, the only one who is truly righteous, who will lay down his life for us, to intercede for us so that we can live. Do we get that's the gospel? The only way God can treat us like friends is how he mistreated his son on the cross. God's holiness and justice meet there. The only way that God can still be holy, the only way that God can still be just, the only way that God can be gracious and merciful is the cross of Christ. And the only hope that we have to be a friend and a family member is the cross of Christ. Psalm 85.10 says this, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. It's the picture of the cross where righteousness, love, kiss. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he was up with his disciples in the upper room and he called them friends. In John 15, 13, he says this, greater love has no one than this, has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends If you do what I command, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. Can't you hear that in Genesis 18? God reveals to Abraham, why? Because he's his friend, what he is doing. And he calls us friends, for I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. Are you a friend of God? Don't think being a sinner disqualifies you. That's the good start. Are you a friend of God? It's not because of what you do. It's because of what Christ has done. Are you a friend 
of God? Do you have that friend in the highest of all places? If you are, it's all by God's grace, through the faith of his son, who became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. We have a tangible reminder before us of the depth of God's love for us to make us friends. We have a reminder of the price God would pay through the brokenness of his son and his poured out blood so that we could be his family members. How is it with you? Derek Jeter is my favorite baseball player. How can he be not? Jeter. It's his last year. And the thought of uh, seeing Jeter in his last year would be awesome. I was thinking as, as I was preparing for this this week, I thought about, wouldn't it be really cool to get Derek Jeter's jersey? What would I do with it? You know, up in my study, I have some other Yankee memorabilia. What would I do with Derek Jeter's jersey? Well, probably what you would do. I'd probably frame it. I'd probably put it in the nicest frame in the most prominent place in my study, and I just admire it. Would you wear it? If, if, if you got something like, for me, a baseball fan, would I, would I wear, if I weren't, started hanging out with his jersey, you guys all make fun of me. You would. You'd say, come on, Jakes, really? You're wearing Jeter's jersey, man. It's Jeter's jersey. You don't deserve to wear his jersey, bro. Take the thing off, put it in a frame, hang it on the wall. But I say, I want to wear his jersey, man. I want to be like him. I want to wear, I mean, it's Jeter, man. It's his, it's his jersey. You say, no, no, no. You have no right to wear his jersey. Hang it on the wall. Do you know that we have the privilege of wearing the righteousness of Christ. And it's nothing religious that we're to hang on the daggum wall. He has become our sin so that we could wear his righteousness when we wake up tomorrow, when we go to work, when we live, when we die. We have the privilege of having the very righteousness of God. Why? Because he calls us friend. He calls us family, and he wants us to live our lives knowing that he is so for us and so with us and so crazy about us that when he sees us, he sees us in his son's jersey. Let's pray. Father, the fact that you call sinners like us friends is amazing, but you did more than call us that. You made it a reality. And the only way you made it a reality is that you would come, not just to investigate Sodom and Gomorrah, that you would come as your son. Come and become our sin so that we could become your righteousness. Come and taste our death so that we could taste eternal life. The only way we could be your friend is by your grace and faith in your son who lived and died and was resurrected so that we can now wear his name, his righteousness forever. God, remind us of that because the enemy wants to tell us that we're just disqualified and our sin is so great still. Remind us that you love sinners like us and remind us of the sufficiency of Christ as we gather our tithes and offerings and we take this meal, we pray in Christ's name, amen.